Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Damon Fairless. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is scheduled to be in Washington today. He's meeting Joe Biden at the White House and then speaking with lawmakers. This visit comes at a critical time in Ukraine's war with Russia. For nearly two years, Ukraine has depended on support from the U.S. and other Western allies. But the billions of dollars coming from the U.S. is at risk of running out, as a $60 billion package President Biden wants to send to Ukraine gets tangled up in a political tug of war. This cannot wait. Congress needs to pass supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for the holiday resources. Simple as that. Frankly, I think it's stunning that we've gotten to this point in the first place. While Congress, Republicans in Congress, are willing to give Putin the greatest gift he could hope for. Elena Zelenska, Ukraine's first lady, told the BBC on Sunday that this U.S. aid is the difference between life and death for Ukrainians. We cannot get tired of the situation, because otherwise we will die. And if the world gets tired, they will simply let us die. And given what is happening, this danger that the aid will slow down constitutes a mortal danger to us. Despite fierce fighting in recent months, the front line has barely moved. Russia has stepped up its missile attacks on Kyiv in the past few days. And Volodymyr Zelensky is facing tough questions at home over his leadership. Francis Farrell is a reporter with the Kyiv Independent newspaper, and he joins me now to talk about this. Hey, Francis, thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Okay, so let's start off with money, because Ukraine is is quite dependent on funding, in particular from the states. And there's a there's a I guess the potential for that U.S. funding to dry up. The U.S. has sent billions of dollars to Ukraine since the beginning of the war, but the sixty billion or so in new money that Biden wants to send to the Ukraine has been hung up now by lawmakers in Washington. So I guess my first question really is: What would the end of U.S. funds mean for Ukraine's war effort? I mean, it's the kind of darkest question at the moment uh, going around in Ukraine. But there was a Washington Post article about this recently, about how actually most of these funds, they they don't go straight into Ukraine's coffers. They actually go to uh, American defense companies, first and foremost, for the weapons and the ammunition that goes to Ukraine, with which obviously Ukraine is fighting this war. And we've seen this trend over time where slowly and surely stocks of Soviet-made munitions, especially shells, air defense missiles, and so on, are slowly drying up. So you see this gradual transition towards uh, NATO weaponry, NATO caliber artillery ammunition, Mm -hmm. uh, and so on. And 
And that has become the bread and butter of what Ukraine is fighting this war with at this point. Um, the availability of artillery ammunition is probably one of the most important indicators of which side is going to be able to conduct offensive operations, how well one side uh, can defend. And I can say that if that just stops coming, it, it's a pretty simple equation. You know, Ukraine will have to start rationing it uh, and they'll they'll have to use less and less of it. And if it actually runs out, then that's, uh, again, a really dark scenario because Russia will be able to start moving forward and, you know, Ukraine won't have anything to hit them with you know there's only so much that that bravery in in this sense can can do for you if you don't have any ammunition just last week biden announced that the u.s is going to send 175 million in military aid uh, for for weapons and equipment that's previously approved money, and it's it's a what's called a presidential drawdown. So that just basically allows for quick discretionary military funds in kind of emergency situations. So I'm just curious, you know, how far would that money go? That 175 million. Normally, the scale of it is about half a billion here, or a billion here, or perhaps a smaller one would be 200 million. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, unfortunately, 175 million is definitely one of the uh, smaller, smaller packages. And I think uh, mm. uh, Washington did say that uh, this could be one of the last ones, actually, if this extra funding isn't approved. So it, it definitely doesn't go a very long way, to be honest. Yeah, and we, we've heard that from from U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken as well, just that kind of that warning that this this might be the end of it if, if there's more funding. They're in a ferocious battle now in the south and the east. We are running out of uh, funding for them. By the way, 90%... Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And and it, it's a very... We're, we're in a very strange time at the moment in general with this. We see Zelensky going to Washington now to try and make a final push um, to, to, get this, to get this passed because, mm -hmm. unfortunately, uh, we're in a kind of state in the war, a new paradigm, I guess, where once it's clear now that Ukraine's big counteroffensive on which so much really hinged um, kind of failed in the end to to make a strategic difference the the conversation has shifted from one of okay a quick ukrainian victory or perhaps a stalemate and now it's a question of well we could have a stalemate ukraine could continue to hold the line or if suddenly there's no more ammunition to fight with it could be russia who has a very simple road to victory and I want to come back to that. Um, but before I do, I, I, I want to ask again about the support for Ukraine. So beyond the U.S., how do things look in terms of international support for, for Ukraine? Well, beyond the U.S., obviously, then you have the European partners. Um, and there, again, there, there is trouble. I mean, Europe has notoriously kind of been complacent with their defense obligations, even within NATO before the full-scale war in Ukraine. And uh, they've been caught out in the sense that now, you know, Kiev is certainly very much dependent more on the U.S. than on, on Europe because Europe just can't provide aid at a rate that, that matches uh, the, what the U.S. is giving. And again, here, like qu quantitatively, uh, the most important thing 
is artillery ammunition. And the Europeans have just been really slow, uh, scrambling to, to even start, you know, upping production on their end. Of course, they have given uh, a lot of important systems. So a lot of uh, artillery howitzers, self-propelled howitzers, tanks, of course, the leopards and the challengers. <laughs> uh, and air defense has been crucial as well. But uh, again, when it comes, we're talking about a, a full-scale uh, tussle, a numbers game between the military-industrial complexes of of Russia and the West. And unfortunately, because uh, there was so much delay uh, in giving and so much reluctance, which is still there with some systems, to, to give Ukraine the really game-changing systems which it could have quickly won the war with, now it is really down to a numbers game of artillery shells and, and drones and, and people. That's a, a game which is just a lot harder to fight uh, for Ukraine and one where Russia really seems to have the advantage. So uh, I, I'd like to come back to this this change in the war, but but before I do, let's let's talk about uh, President Zelensky. He's been a popular leader. I mean, at the outset of the war, in particular, he was kind of a, a rock star in, in some ways internationally. From the battlefield to the bunker to meeting with heads of state, over the past ten months, Volodymyr Zelensky seems to have been everywhere. And it's that fighting spirit, along with Zelensky's decision to remain in Kyiv and rally his country, that made him Time Magazine's pick for Person of the Year. But in Ukraine right now, where's his popularity? How's he, how's he doing there? Surveys have been have been conducted, and at, at this point, you know, he still has a high rating of popularity, but is it is starting to slip. And uh, yeah. when it comes to the trust, that's the interesting one where. He's starting to lose in the trust ratings to the army in general, the military in general, and specifically the commander-in-chief of the military, Valery Zaluzhny. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what we see here, there was discussion back and forth about whether or not uh, Ukraine should hold elections, but whether right. or not that happens, what we are seeing is a return of political competition and, you know, the end of this kind of completely one-sided idea of of complete political unity and now the the return of a very open and and very often very valid criticism towards the country's leadership let's talk about some of that criticism so uh Vitaly Klitschko, who's the, the mayor of Kyiv, recently said that Ukraine was drifting towards authoritarianism. So much so that he warned that uh, Ukraine could resemble Russia in the near future, at least politically. Uh, Klitschko and... The and that was with an, an interview with uh, Swiss media, I think. What was he referring to? What did he mean? First of all, it's worth, it's worth mentioning that that itself was a very politicized uh, statement. Definitely not objective, <laughs> because Klitschko himself has been... Uh, political and personal rival of Zelensky mm -hmm. since uh, a long time ago, since Zelensky came came into office, uh, and so you know it, it's kind of in his interest politically uh, to to stir the pot, and we don't really know exactly who the main challengers will be uh, in this new political competition to Zelensky, but right. Klitschko could well be one of them. Uh, but of course, you know. There are elements of a predominantly democratic uh, country and society which uh, come under threat and you know, potentially 
usually for good reason, in in the case of such an ex existential uh, war for survival. And then you have to right. find this middle ground where that's uh, seen by a society as acceptable or already already too dangerous. You know, for example, you have the the consolidation of of television uh, channels into this unified twenty four hour telemarathon, which gives very little. Uh, in terms of actual useful information about what's going on in the country. And this general idea of censorship and propaganda um, during wartime, unfortunately, that ugliness is, is starting to come uh, more and more up to the surface now. Hi, I'm Salima Shivji, and I'm a reporter here in Mumbai. We're gearing up for the biggest election in history right now, with Prime Minister Narendra Modi looking very likely to win his third term. And whether you love him, hate him, or know nothing about him, there's no denying Modi is one of the most powerful political figures out there right now. Learn why in the newest season of Understood. Modi's India Understood, available now wherever you get your podcasts. So we heard last month, the head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, General Zaluzhny, he used the word stalemate to describe the war because it's been nearly impossible for Ukraine to reclaim much territory. In a surprisingly candid essay, Ukraine's top commander, General Valery Zaluzhny, said Ukraine needs more Western technology to help clear mines, stop Russian drones, and to help build up its own defense industries. And since since he said that and referred to it as a stalemate, the tension between Zaluzhny and President Zelensky has been clear. So I'm I'm curious how that relationship is being perceived in Ukraine. Uh, yeah, so that was indeed the trigger, and since then we've had Zelensky uh, reacted in an interview to the Sun. It was a kind of veiled uh, stab, I guess, at Zaluzhny, saying that uh, military people should not get into politics and he you know he openly rebuffed uh, Zaluzhny's I think very clear-cut and objective observation about how the war looks at the moment. I believe that today indeed the situation is difficult. I don't think that this is a stalemate. Now Ukrainian media which is still most of it is 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 free and and quite uh, fair and objective. Has started to talk about this openly, you know, and you know this tension is understood to be real because because it is real. You know, you don't see them taking photos together. Um, mm. You see you see Zelensky taking photos with the, the next generals underneath Zeluzhny who are uh, potentially you know potentially candidates to to replace him. And it's just it's just getting getting worse and worse. This political uh, fragmentation does have implications for the battlefield strategic situation. Zaluzhny is the mm -hmm. commander in chief, but Zelensky is the su supreme commander in chief. Going back to what General Zaluzhny said when when he made his comment about the war being at a stalemate, he he was referring, as you mentioned, to the the stalled spring offensive, which began in June and it, and it was really a major operation and there was a, there was a lot riding on it. There were billions of dollars in Western backing, but it really 
it really was quite insignificant in terms of the dent it made mm -hmm. in the front line. I think I think Ukraine took something back like 500 square kilometers or something. So so I, I'm curious: is this seen as a military failure there? Yeah, I think I think at this point everyone is is more or less uh, on the same page with that one. For a long time, while uh, you know the official statements were still saying that. Uh, battles and offensive operations are continuing. We were all thinking, well, maybe you know they're on the on on the brink of some kind of breakthrough. They've reached this main Russian fortified line in the south, and and maybe they just need one last little push. But I think by October, uh, when we saw Russia attack with huge amounts of men and 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 equipment on Avdivka near Donetsk, mm. uh, you know, it, it, it was pretty clear at that point that they weren't too worried about, about a Ukrainian attacking breakthrough. And, and it was around the same time that any progress whatsoever uh, stalled in the areas where Ukraine was attacking. And, and, you know, it's worth remembering that indeed this is, you know, man maneuver warfare where you break through and surround the opponent has basically uh, come to an end in Ukraine for now. Uh, it, so when we're talking about attacking operations and and gaining territory, it's really just one trench at a time, one field at a time, one tree line at a time. It's become very, very hard for both sides. So you you mentioned that Russian forces have been focused on Avdivka, just north of Donetsk. Uh, can you can you tell me what's going on there? Why why the focus there? So Avdivka has a lot of uh, political significance for for Russia because it's right outside, you know, the I guess the biggest city in in this Donbas region, uh, Donetsk, and it it has been this kind of Ukrainian frontline stronghold since the the war between these countries started in 2014. And, you know, over time, Russia made some gains around the city, but they didn't actually, they couldn't push through the city at all, even though it was so close to Donetsk. And now they saw this bulge in the front line, they saw this Ukrainian salient, and in October, they made a real attempt to quickly surround it, so to capture it in a very quick pincer attack. They sent dozens and dozens of, of tanks and armored vehicles to try and overwhelm the Ukrainian defense. But the Ukrainian defense held. Uh, these columns of armored vehicles were destroyed in, in huge numbers. So far, the Ukrainians have repelled these assaults, inflicting huge losses on Russia's soldiers. The UK's Ministry of Defense says these are among Russia's biggest casualty rates of the war. But the Russians only managed to advance the north. But that didn't stop the Russians. They, they've still got plenty of resources, plenty of warm bodies to throw at, at the fight. And now what they've been doing for the last two months is just still attacking, but in smaller infantry groups, just like they did around Bakhmut. So you have a squad of uh, 10 to 20 guys basically just creeping forward. Some of them are even, they're kind of meant to die. Their, their whole purpose is just to find out where the Ukrainians are firing from. And, uh, you know, again, it comes down to this grinding warfare bit by bit, tree line by tree line. So, so is it essentially that we're, we're looking at a conflict that'll just be for the lack of a better term, a, a meat grinder for, for a long time until someone runs out of will. 
and weapons? Is, is that what we're looking at? Uh, I mean, potentially, that's what it has been over all of 2023, basically, if we're being completely honest. And uh, it it is an existential struggle for Ukraine because Russia has made its aim of of you know, taking the capital, basically ending independent Ukraine as as we know it, it's it's very clear about that aim, and that aim hasn't changed. And of course, uh, for the personalist uh, totalitarian country that is that is Russia, it's for Putin, it's it seems to be an existential struggle for him as well. I mean, obviously, he he went through a lot. He went through a lot of uh, humiliation. He's had to put his whole country on a war footing. Um, he's had a coup almost against him, uh, and and he's still he's still going for this and doubling down. So it's it's very hard to see how we could reach a point where where one side just decides we've had enough. Um, but I guess that's the most important thing now for Ukraine to to put the pressure back on Russia uh, because at the moment, unfortunately. Uh, Russia's plan of tiring out the West and, and just grinding down Ukraine in the way they're doing seems to be working pretty well. All right, Francis, thanks so much for taking time to chat. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. All right, that's all for today. I'm Damon Fairless. Thanks for listening to FrontBurner, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.